Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Zuta Frit and Chris Frit. Uta Frithi is Emeritus Professor of Cognitive Development at University College London's Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience, and Dr. Chris is Emeritus Professor of Neuropsychology at the Wellcome Trust Centre for Neuroimaging at University College London. And today we're talking about their book, What Makes Us Social. So there it is, a very nice cover, by the way. So uh, thank you so much for accepting the invitation. It's a big pleasure to everyone. Thank you for, for asking us. So I would like to, uh, to start with, I guess, the most basic question here. So what is social cognition exactly? And when we talk about social cognition, what aspects of human behavior and psychology are we referring to exactly? Well, we have come uh, when writing this book to the conclusion that actually all of psychology is social psychology. We are not isolated organisms in this world. We are living in a world uh, of agents uh, and we are completely dependent on each other. So whatever we do, whatever we think, it is somehow influenced by the real presence of others or the virtual presence of others. And the cognition part essentially is saying we're interested in what are the mechanisms that underlie the various processes that involved in social interactions. And one aspect of our book is we point out that there are many different kinds of processes needed for social interactions. Uh, and actually, we're going to get a bit into that. And one of the things that you do in the book uh, is that you divide it into four different major categories, cooperation, competition, computation, and culture. So why these uh, four categories? Uh, mainly for alliteration. <laughs> That's just a, <laughs> a, a little um, um, joke between us. But we do believe that um, cooperation and competition is absolutely pervasive in all organisms, all living organisms, humans included. And they're, they're really, really forces that we have to explain and um, uh, interrogate. Now, as to uh, communication and culture, we are really moving very much into the world of humans. Um, and uh, we are thinking about what in what way is is this social interaction of humans actually different from that of of other animals and we have uh, some suggestions about what is very special about human culture and communication and of course the computational section is um precisely to look at give a very broad idea of what sort of what sort of um mechanisms are involved and to some extent, we can already specify these in computational terms, although when we get to the higher levels, it all becomes hand-waving. 
But we will need uh, computational accounts, otherwise it really is is very vague and, and very flimsy. So we're certainly trying to put it on, put cognition onto some um, models, computational models that can be used to um, guide um, empirical research. Yeah. So starting with cooperation, and I guess that we're going to see that these four different categories are not exactly strictly separate from one another, because we're going actually to start by talking about learning here. And I guess that to some extent also has something to do with culture, not just with cooperation. But why do we need to learn so much from others as humans? Well, the, the simplest answer to this is um, it is so much more efficient to learn from others than making your own mistakes. We just don't have the time to do that, to learn everything from scratch. So it is amazingly beneficial to observe what others are doing. They've already filtered out all the possible um, yeah. mistakes that can be yes, made. We can use effectively, we're using, making use of the experience of many, many others to supplement our own rather limited experience. And this learning from others is observed in virtually all animals from fruit flies to fish to us. And what exactly do we learn from others? Are there certain specific kinds of information that we look for or not? Well, in the, in the, at the most basic level when we're learning, I mean, we even learn about the world of objects from others, even though this is not social, the learning is social. Mm -hmm. and. I mean, the very basic thing is we learn what do other people eat? What do they not eat? We learn where do they, or animals learn, where do you go to find food? Where do you not go to avoid predators? Um, who are good people to mate with? All that sort of thing is, is very basic to what we learn about. But then, of course, at higher levels, we learn about, which we'll perhaps come on to later, we have to learn about agents. We have to learn about the goals of others, which may be different from our own. We have to learn about the preferences of others that may be different from our own. So, for example, if Uta likes spinach, it doesn't necessarily mean that spinach is a good thing to eat. <laughs> but of course, we have to learn about ideas. How does the world work? Can we learn also that from others? Well, that's probably uniquely human. And I think that in this particular case of learning, it is also important to understand who do we learn from, because I don't think that we just pick at random people to learn information from, right? Absolutely right. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are, there are two aspects to that. I think you, if you're learning about the world, then you need to find out who knows, so you're looking for experts. But if you're learning about how should I behave, for example, we can le we learn how to be part of our in-group, and in that case, we learn, we choose to copy high-status individuals in our group, which of course is different, that high-status individuals, as we are learning in, at the moment in the UK, members of parliament don't seem to be very good um, people to copy from, even though they're high status in some sort of in-group. So there are those two differences about 
and even young children already begin to learn who are the people who know and who are the people who don't know. Yeah, so this uh, learning about other people is um, it, not just about objects and about the physical world is, is extremely important to build up, um, you know, this question of, of trust. And um, it is indeed not at all random who we learn from. And um, it's it's one of one of the uh, big problems, I think, um, as we move about, you know, the world of, of agents um, to learn from the good models, not from the bad ones. Uh, and what about imitation? Be because we imitate others a lot, but when do we imitate others exactly? Right. Yeah, okay. Um, imitation is really one of the very most basic and pervasive, again, in, in all of, of uh, um, social animals that we know of. Um, imitation is, is the way of learning from others uh, instead of having to make your own mistakes. But there are many different forms of imitation. You could say you, you imitate motor movements, but also you could say you imitate uh, goals, you know, you 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 want to reach the same goal, but with perhaps completely different movements. And there is another very interesting aspect of imitation, which is called over-imitation. That is, we actually do things that are completely unnecessary to reach a goal, but we do it because we have models whom we trust part of our in-group who say this is the way we do it. And uh, we are very prone as human beings to um, over imitate. And this is uh, one of the sort of um, essential tools, I think, to um, lead to um, a culture of a particular in-group. What's interesting is that this over imitation, which means you put in, when you're trying to reach your goal, you do something that is not actually necessary to reach the goal but that's what we do. Chimpanzees don't do this. They're more rational. They just go for the goal. <laughs> yeah, actually, I was just going to comment on that because there are a few studies and uh, I'm not completely sure if they've been replicated or not where uh, a human adult uh, presents uh, chimpanzees and human children how to perform a particular task and they go through un some unnecessary steps and the human children copy or imitate all the steps, but the chimpanzees are more efficient. I yes, guess. Yeah. As far as I know, that's still a robust, robust <laughs> finding. Yeah, yeah. And it's not um, entire. At first, it was thought that children do this. But adults do it too. Adults yeah. do it yeah. even more, if anything. Yeah. And so I'd like to ask you a little bit now about emotions. So how do you approach emotions from the perspective of social psychology? What are emotions exactly and what role do they play in our social lives? They are clearly... Um, incredibly important signals to each other and to ourselves. They come, as it were, from the depths of cognition and inform us about things like danger or um, 
fair or indeed of some things that we should approach. So essentially, there are means to um, for uh, many biological creatures to know when to approach or to avoid things, what are good, what are bad things. Fear and and threat responses are the sort of most discussed. Yeah, uh, um, in really important uh, for survival, and they they exist in humans. But in humans, we have more complex emotions that we talk about, that we develop, that we um, try and and understand not just within our own processing systems and brains, but in other people. But there are special very social emotions, things like guilt and shame, which are relate to how we, um, so guilt means that we could, we've done something which other people will not approve of. So it's already a social aspect and shame. I can't, there's a subtle difference, which I can't remember. Um, well, you, if you're found out, it is a very bad thing. But what's the difference between shame and guilt? I well, think there's a lot of discussion. <laughs> and but many of the, these are signals which we're sometimes deliberately using, and you can actually sort of fake an emotion to get some advantage. I mean, that's where we come into the competition side of things, or to get. I mean, there's this nice idea that somebody does something in a socially inappropriate, people get cross. So then the person shows signs of embarrassment. And then the other people say, recognize, well, this person recognizes that they've done something wrong and maybe we should forgive them. So there's an interesting um, interaction here in terms of emotions. But there's an enormous amount to be said about emotions. <laughs> it's hard, we can't do, do it justice, not here, not even in, in the book, although we, we try and look at emotions at both at the level of sort of completely intuitive, unconscious, almost, you know, gut feelings, as well as these very deliberate expressions of feelings, which may actually be fake sometimes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I, actually, I've had interviews on the show exclusively about emotions, and a few of them took almost two hours. So it's yeah. perfectly fine if we can't do justice here to uh, research on emotions today. So... Um, but we, as humans and other social animals, I guess, as well, we have this need to affiliate. And also in the book, you talk about, for example, what you call we representation. So what are these kinds of representations exactly? Well, I think there, I mean, there are two aspects to this. So affiliation, I guess, wanting to be part of a group is obviously the, almost the defining feature of social animals, including us. Mm -hmm. And there are all sorts of advantages. So flocks of, I mean, shoals of fish, it's a way of avoiding predators. It's a way of, I mean, there's this interesting phenomenon that fish might be looking for food and there's a scent trail that it can follow, but the signal is incredibly weak and you can show nicely both experimentally and computationally, that if there's a very weak sensory signal that a single fish would not be able to follow, a large shoal of fish would be able to follow because they're integrating their information. So there's that aspect of affiliation. But the joint representation, I think, is a rather different thing, which I okay. call the we mode. 
but this is much more concerned with the specifics of a joint action. So that when two people want to do a task together, it's very useful if they represent the space around them in the same metric. So rather than having looking at things on the table from my point of view, I should look at the things on the table from our point of view. And then you get interesting phenomena like something that's not in my reach, but is in your reach becomes, it's now reachable for me in this indirect sense. And you can actually show changes in the brain that you now respond to these unreachable objects as if they were reachable, just because you have this person with you. And that's an extremely advantageous way of representing the world if you want to do things together. And it's not only objects for which you have this representation, but also ideas. Yeah. <laughs> and of course you have to um, assume that we can talk about these ideas and discuss them and find out what the differences are and often converge. So in conversations, people actually align their semantics. They start using the same words to represent things which they might have not done off their, on their own or with different people. So you're aligning at that level. Mm -hmm. And actually, at a certain point there, you mentioned joint action. And when it comes to coordinating our behavior collectively, uh, there's also some other related notions like joint attention, shared intentionality that come at least to some extent from the work of, for example, Mike, Dr. Michael Tomasello, who I have on the show, and others, correct? Yeah, yeah. So you know that, I mean, that, that's very, that relates very closely to these ideas, yes. And uh, joint action is, is, is in itself an extremely rich field of experimentation, which we like very much. It's interesting, particularly because um, imitation doesn't go very far when you want to collaborate and cooperate. You actually have to do make complementary, not identical um, actions in order to really work well yeah. together. So there are very interesting um, experiments on this and it seems to all happen uh, unconsciously and, and very, very fluently allowing yeah. um, very complex structures, for example, to be built. Um, and and this this is again, one, one, uh, one of the things of wonder about our uh, social nature. Yes, because our friends in Denmark naturally did a lot of work with Lego and they were looking at how people making Lego models together and you get a big advantage if the actions are complementary. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I would like to get now into competition, but I guess that this first question would also apply to cooperation in a way. So uh, it's important for us to learn how, how to predict other people's behavior, right? So, but why exactly is this important? Why do we need to be able to predict others' behavior? Well, it's clear, I mean, certainly in the case of joint action, a successful joint action will depend on me knowing what the other person is going to do at this moment and them knowing what I'm going to do and both of us knowing that we know this. So in that sense, prediction of action at that level is very important and that's in a co cooperative situation in a competitive situation um if i can predict what you're going to do next i can take advantage of this so you can see this in basic playing games 
And I think we give an example in the book of the sidestep in rugby, where the, you have to predict where this person is going to run, <clears throat> and they have a trick where they can make it look as if they're going to run in that direction, where they're actually going to run in that direction. And then you people know about this trick, and you know what bit of the body you should look at. So you get all this <coughs> complicated, um, what's the word? Bluff. Double no, but bluff. I'm thinking you get this um, escalation. escalation of prediction which is all about trying to know what the person is going to do next. And computationally, at the, at the lowest level, you can predict what someone is going to, at the very simplest level, if you're moving very fast, you're going to go on moving in that direction. So there are simple physical constraints about which enable you to predict where someone will go. At the agent level, you basically have to work out what the person's goal is and then you can predict where they will go and whether they will go around boundaries because they want to reach this particular goal. And the highest level, which is where what we call mentalizing comes in, we have to know what the person believes. And we have to realize that a false, even a belief that we know to be false, will determine what this other person who believes it is true is going to do. And well, you asked about, you know, prediction, why are we so interested in prediction? But I think it is it is the um, uh, really the, the the major theory at the moment is that the brain is a prediction engine and it just doesn't even only refer to uh, all our social interactions, but but everything, our movements, how we perceive just how we see what's out there in the world. This is this is where Bayes comes in. And the, I, this is the Bayesian idea of the prediction engine. Mm -hmm. No, actually, just recently, I interviewed Dr. Anil Saf, and we talked about the idea of the brain as a prediction machine and how that applies to perception specifically, yeah. because actually we do not perceive the world as it is, but basically a useful yeah. construct of reality i i would put it that way at least yes. right. it's our model of the world and we're constantly testing the model by essentially making predictions about what should happen and if they don't you have to update your model that's the basic story and you can apply that to people so i presume that this person has this belief and this goal so i predict he's going to do x one action and then if he doesn't, I have to change my ideas about what his intentions are. Mm -hmm. And so another aspect related to competition is how we develop a group identity. So uh, first of all, what is a group identity and then how do we develop? You can talk about that. Yes, um, it, it's, it's a major part of... of uh, um, what we talk about in, in the book. Um, mm -hmm. And you will also have talked to people who will have uh, perhaps been very knowledgeable about this idea of in-groups and out-groups. So we yes. are affiliated to our in-group and we like what our in-group uh, members like. We, um, we value the same things. And at the same time, we develop this hostility to out-groups. It really, we differentiate ourselves from the outgroups and our identity is is certainly um very much to do with which group we have affiliated with now it's very interesting to ask how 
um, how does it uh, arise, how uh, changeable it, is it? And there are sort of extremes even. There are experiments that show you can um, join, uh, be, be part of an in-group just by wearing the same colored t-shirt and how easy it is to produce this. And on the other hand, you find at the other extreme, people who would love to join a particular group and they will not be accepted. And one of the really um, big, uh, I suppose, um, sufferings in, in our social life is to be excluded. And, and that has, uh, that, that we want to avoid at all costs. So this is one of the drivers of imitation. So to yeah. stay within a group, uh, if we have that threat of being perhaps um, expelled or ignored, uh, we, we try even harder. And this of course also um, makes us even more hostile to the outgroup. We didn't want to, we don't want to be too part of another group. But so in other, in other words, um, yes, it is uh, 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 possible to, to join groups very quickly and easily in a temporary way, but on the other hand, we are sort of born into particular groups and have our identity from there, um, from our appearance, from our family, which we cannot easily shed and, and which seem to be um, you know, very, very pervasive. It also has to do with the status that we might, as it were, inherit from our uh, parents, from our family, um, and it's very difficult, very difficult to change, to change this. But um, what is it? I mean, again, you can look at these levels. So at the bottom level, it's all about being similar in very basic ways, but at the top level, it's about having similar ideas and similar models of the world. And I think that to some extent, having once you reach that level, you can overcome some of the lower levels. That's right. And for this, of course, we really need language. Yes. To be able to, you know, have developed the same vocabulary as having the same language. And in fact, language identity is even more important than, say, ethnic identity or mm -hmm. national identity. No, but I think having the same language is very interesting because if you immediately recognize if you're looking at someone who doesn't know the right jargon, who's pretending that they know about bays, but they... <laughs> yeah, no, actually, this is something that I've already addressed on the show with linguists specifically, and we talked about how sometimes just by listening to, not even the language, but the accent of yeah. someone, we can immediately draw... Uh, more or less right conclusions about their socioeconomic status and uh, other stuff like that. So we, are, we, we I, it seems that we are very good at picking that sort of social information just from language and how people speak uh, alone. Good much. Mm -hmm. And so, but uh, we tend to think of competition as competition between groups, but actually within the same group, we yeah. also compete with each other for reputation, for example, right? So in this particular case, how do we develop our reputation? Well, we want to be considered good cooperators, to be chosen by others, mm -hmm. to work with to talk to and so on so this is I suppose the, the driver of um you know of a good reputation of, of of trying to get have and keep and 
guard a good reputation. And that means we um, cannot be anonymous. Um, in fact, anonymity is, as it were, the enemy of um, reputation. You can you can hide all sorts of bad behavior by if it's never discovered, then your reputation might not suffer. But if it is found out, you will fall down completely. So one of the important things is to be sure to be seen to to do good things, so that you are considered a, a trustworthy partner, potential partner. And um, will will be uh, your your deeds will be reciprocated, in in the way that you know will be incredibly advantageous for you and your whole family. All the people depend on you. Now we we believe that it was Adam Smith, yeah. who um, the economist, the father of economy, um, who was um, so explicit about. A reputation that he said that people value it even more than money and that is I think uh, still true yeah but he also said that having lots of money was a sort of marker of yeah. esteem he called it esteem esteem or a, a, a regard the, in the eyes of others yes, but it was, so this is what it's about but it was the esteem that was more important than the money but this, the, one of the big questions is how do you learn about reputation, um, and 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 indeed, you know, how do you know, um, and and you cannot rely on your own observations because you haven't got the, enough data um, for interactions. You 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 meet lots of people you've never met before, so we believe that we rely to a very large extent on gossip. That is what other people say about other people. And far from this being a, a, um, a kind of activity that's belittled and, and uh, indeed considered improper, we think it is absolutely crucial as a kind of um, way of um, understanding, um, you know, how we can trust or not trust a person that we have not met before. And just, I mean, the internet is very interesting in this regard because now you're interacting even more with people who are never met before, you're never going to meet. And they try to th effectively, all these, what is it called, trust pilots. And I mean, there are various tricks that they're trying to develop to which take the place of gossip. How do we know that we can trust this website or whatever? And of course, at the same time, because of the arms race, there are tricks that the other side uses to make you think that they're trustworthy when they're not really. Yeah. Like paying people to <laughs> put in likes or so on. So, I mean, that's very interesting to see how that will evolve. And it's at the moment much more dangerous than it was in the olden days where you just had a village where everybody knew everybody else and the gossip was more reliable. But I was thinking, I mean, the other aspect of this competition within the in group relates to this because there's always this idea that if I could if I could get away with it I would try and do something so I get more money than other people and these we typically call free riders yes and um I'm sure you know there's these common goods experiments where everybody puts money into a central pot and this is then shared out but a free rider can realize that they don't need to put the money in but they'll still get the share this is sometimes called tax avoidance i think <laughs> <laughs> a 
there. I mean, that's this interesting tension all the time within all of us between um, am I going to try and maximise the reward for myself or am I going to try and maximise the reward for the group? And again, that's another example of the we mode because it, when we enter the we mode, we're, we're all automatically thinking about maximising the reward for the group rather than ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I guess I think we can say safely that we have both pro-social and anti-social tendencies yeah. depending on what serves us best in yeah. each situation, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, but how do we decide which people we should trust? We should trust. Trust. Trust, yes. Well, let, let's take the example um, of, of us, you and you. You will um, select people that you interview and we will select people who can interview us. So um, an example of the information that's being transmitted here first is you will, in your emails, you actually say, these these people have said that following things about me. And um, there are people who we shall say, you know, we, we, we know, we know these people, we can trust them. And we can therefore have an idea that, okay, this is a person we should say yes to if he asks us to interview. I don't know how you select us, whether you say, hmm, I have heard somebody saying, yeah, the friends are you know, able to say some interesting things uh, about um, um, social communication or uh, whatever brought you to it. There's always a risk. You, you didn't know whether we would um, just uh, talk nonsense um, and um, well, you you have of course means to then say let's let's stop this, um, but it's it's socially quite awkward to do that. Yeah, but I guess also, I mean, it partly depends on you. Obviously, if you have some particular goal, if I'm doing an experiment, I may say I need desperately somebody who knows how to measure eye movements or something, and then I will look around. I mean, I might look at the literature, or I might look at UCL psychology department and find out who works on eye movements and then I would ask sort of informally is he a good chap does he cooperate nicely I mean that would be the way I guess I would start looking yes but it's all about gossip really yeah well there is the other thing that some people are experts in uh, studying how we uh, guess whether somebody is trustworthy just from Mm looking at their face or seeing what they're like. Um, so that's a very dodgy area because you can be so mistaken. Well, no, there's even there's some experimental evidence. Suggest, I mean, we all have a very good, everybody agrees on what a trustworthy face looks like. You can do that. But it turns out that trustworthy, people with trustworthy faces are not necessarily trustworthy. And indeed, if you have a very trustworthy face, you discover that you can get away with things. So you should be particularly (laughs) suspicious. (laughs) So so perhaps you shouldn't always have on a completely trustworthy face all the time, at least. Yeah, as as we say, you should always pretend to be nice. Pretend to be nice and kind. 
and always live your life so that you know everybody can look at it and um that that would be quite a good strategy to do mm -hmm. so actually earlier when i asked you the first question about competition and we talked about the importance of predicting other people's behavior you mentioned briefly mentalizing i mean is that the same thing as a theory of mind it is yeah. it is yeah a theory of mind is a bit of a cumbersome term yeah. and it, it really is about attributing mental states to each other mm -hmm. mental states such as beliefs or desires so it's not a theory of how the mind works it's not a theory <laughs> it's it's really a nickname for something that we didn't have much of a concept before and i believe that it's really um our work on autism which sort of threw light on the importance of this ability to attribute mental states to others because it seemed and an experiment seemed to, to confirm this that um, autistic children found it very difficult to um, automatically track the beliefs of other people and they would much rather go with physical reality than with this sort of mental um, beliefs mm. um, that, that we normally have no trouble with following. So yes, it is It is a very um, interesting concept to us. And I think it took us a while, but we now believe that this is a very dark art um, and possibly quite um, quite unique to humans. Not, not unique in the sense that not down some other species who can be shown to track um, internal states of other conspecifics, mm -hmm. but unique in the sense that we can think about it, that we can actually um, manipulate deliberately what other people might think by implanting false beliefs, by actually deceiving them. And that that is really an, an incredible weapon for competition to use. But there was, there's, I mean, we mentioned in the book these experiments from our friends in Paris, where they they've invented an artificial agent that can do mentalizing and you know there's this recursion so i can think about what your belief is and then i can think about what you think my belief is and then i you know it goes up and up and up yes. so they've actually got an algorithm that can work at these different levels of mentalizing and they can make people play against it and um, it shows that people are you know it can go up to about two levels but what they then did is that they can put these agents acting together, looking at sort of how this might evolve. And in a competitive situation, the the winning algorithm is the one that can reach the highest level of mentalizing. And of course, there's a cost to mentalizing. But at a co cooperative games, in fact, you don't finish up with the highest level of mentalizing. You actually do better if you have rather low levels of mentalizing, in particular, if it's uneven so you know if you have two people two agents working together it's good if one of them doesn't mentalize at all and the other one just yeah, does yeah. a bit you don't want to outthink the other you, you don't, don't want, to... yeah mm -hmm. there are examples of this what's it called the stag hunt game which is where you can either hunt stags or rabbits if you hunt a rabbit you'll get it whatever the other person does but it's the reward is low if you hunt mm -hmm. stags, you get a very big reward, but both of you have to hunt stags. So you have to 
before you play, you have to decide, is he going to hunt stags? And does he think I'm going to hunt stags? And you have, again, this interesting recursion. But people are actually pretty good at this game. And you can just go to a low level and say, yes, we are the sort of people who hunt stags. And that's quite sufficient. To... Yes, actually, these more dark aspects of mentalizing are also very interesting because... I guess that uh, in some sort of way it also connects with, for example, literature on psychopathy and how psychopaths, I mean, they. it's not the case that they lack empathy entirely, but they have high cognitive empathy, but low emotional empathy. And so they are very good at reading other people's minds, but they basically do not care emotionally about how they treat other people. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That that's sort of way yeah. to think about it. Yeah. And so uh getting into some more computational aspects, I guess, um how do higher level cognitive processes interact with lower level cognitive processes? Well, I th I could give some examples, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a, a very simple example is the case of fear conditioning. Okay. Which you can do in people and animals and so on. So with people, you might have them sitting in front of a screen and they're wired up. And they learn, and pictures appear on the screen, red squares and blue squares, and they and they will learn by bitter experience that whenever a blue square appears, they get a nasty shock. And after that has happened, after after many trials, and that's reached that point, whenever the blue square appears, they show a threat response. So their skin conductance will increase and so on and so on. Um, they will show a fear response, which has become conditioned to this blue square and in the sort of Bayesian story you would say well initially the blue square has no value but each time it's followed by a shock it becomes it becomes processes being nastier and nastier which you would call the prior expectation so you reach a point where the prior expectation whenever you see a blue square something nasty is going to happen but you can do exactly the same experiment in a different way which is where the higher order cognition comes in because person can say to you, you've had no experience at all, and they just say to you, when the blue square appears, you're going to get a shock. And this is a very high level of um, explicit metacognition, whatever you might call it. And this can this will immediately produce the fear response, response, the threat response when the blue square appears. And the argument is that this is because it's changed, it's instantaneously changed the prior value of the blue square without having to go through this long learning processes, but has, has created the effect of the long learning process in this top-down manner. So that would be a very simple example of a high-level process operating the way things happen at the bottom. And the other example which we give, I think, is that, you know, you, when you're a child in England, you learn how to cross the road and you learn you have to look to the right because that's where the traffic, near side traffic will be coming from. And eventually that becomes a habit. So that's filtered right down to the bottom of the brain system. So whenever you come to the edge of the pavement, you look right. You don't think about it at all. And of course, this is a disaster as soon as you go to Lisbon or Paris or 
because they were looking in the wrong direction. But that's a habit that's been created by these top-down instructions. Yeah, here in Portugal, actually, children have to learn to look to the left yeah. because we drive on the right side <laughs> of the road. <laughs> um, but regarding these more higher-level processes, I would like to ask you a little bit about uh, consciousness, because, of course, it's one of the, I mean, le least understood and most debated topic out there. And actually, one of the questions people try to answer is if consciousness has any sort of causal power over our behavior or if it's just as sometimes philosophers call it epiphenomenal. So can we answer that question? Well, I mean, I, we certainly believe it's not an epiphenomenon. And it has mm -hmm. caused effects. It has caused effects, but we have to give okay. examples. I mean, also, we think it evolved. So if it evolved, we've got the idea that, you know, earlier animals were probably not conscious and then they became more conscious and we're very conscious. And if it evolved, then it must have some effect because otherwise there's no pressure on it to, to emerge. So actually, you think about consciousness as an evolved adaptation? Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. But also, I think there are two levels of consciousness. So there's what you might call sentience, which is having subjective awareness, and what some people call self-conscious, which is what we have, which is we can actually reflect on our subjective experience. We can talk about our subjective experiences to other people. And this is where I think you can show sort of causal effects, because if I tell you something about your subjective experience, you can actually change the experience and at the same time change your behavior. So the experiment I quite like did, there's something called ego depletion, which is the idea that if you have to do a difficult cognitive task, you become tired and it'd be more difficult to do that and that difficult cognitive task afterwards. <laughs> and they particularly, the task is to inhibit yourself from eating these nice peanuts or something that's on the table in front of you. So if you, spend some time just sitting there not eating these peanuts it actually impairs this cognitive muscle as it were and you find it more difficult to do tasks afterwards and obviously you have a feeling you have the subjective experience that i'd like to eat these peanuts and i'm deliberately suppressing my wish to do this and this is the feeling that makes you think you'll be tired in this process afterwards and they did this nice experiment where they told one group of people doing this task will make you feel tired so you have difficulty afterwards. But the second group were told doing this task will make you feel energized so you actually perform better after this experience. And these instructions actually changed the way that people behaved. So I interpret this as saying you have this feeling of cognitive effort. But the question is, how do you interpret? And the person outside or even your culture is telling you this is the way you should interpret it and because of the way you interpret it that changes your behavior so but, I think but actually if i may uh, when it comes to ego depletion i might me i might be misremembering here but isn't that one of the psychological phenomena that has been 
questioned after the replication crisis. I mean, at least I, I remember talking about that with Dr. Michael Inslicht on the show, and I think we've yeah. mentioned ego yeah. depletion. So I, I'm not sure if there might be some issues with some of the... Well, I would say my argument, I would entirely agree, it has been shown it doesn't replicate, and I'm saying this, what, Mark, what I just told you about, is why it doesn't replicate. Mm. Okay. Because people have different attitudes... Okay. Talk about feeling. Mm -hmm. Should I talk about regret? No, 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 I think that's it. But I, I would say we are getting at a very high level. You know, we uh -huh. are reflecting on conscious processes here. We are interpreting them. And it, it is surely very, um, you, can, you can change the meaning of these feelings mm -hmm. into either saying, you know, make you, it's a good feeling or it's not a good feeling. In a way, that's what cognitive therapy is all about i mean the other thing is it seems to me the very the mere observation that having a false belief can alter your behavior is an example of this top down mm -hmm. yeah right so I, I mean of course one thing that we also do in groups is decision making and problem solving so what characterizes the groups that are better problem solvers? <laughs> well, we are very uh, uh, sort of fans of uh, diversity in, in uh, people who form smallish groups making mm -hmm. decisions so that they can bring different skills to bear, different experiences, different backgrounds. Yeah. Um, different biases. Different biases so that they can actually uh, reflect together on on different perspectives of the same problem. And we believe that if you don't have that diversity, you might sort of converge on a sort of local minimum and don't even look further to possible novel solutions. But if you yeah. have more um, wider view with, with very different perspectives, you might actually eventually see that there are some better ways of solving the problem than you'd ever you know thought of and and this this is the sort of advantage of being in in groups that have different perspectives but we do acknowledge at the same time that there is much more difficulty in communicating um, with each other when we do have different backgrounds as we know when we, we come you know from different language backgrounds different education and so on it, it's very it takes a while um, to understand each other to come to a sort of common vocabulary so this can only be actually happening if you have enough time if you can make decisions slowly really think about it sometimes you have to make decisions very quickly and then it it, it is very difficult to know what what's best but the other aspect is what we call explicit metacognition. So the people in the group have to be good at knowing what they know. So you have to particularly the idea of confidence. So if one member has a, says this is what we should do with a great deal of confidence, you have to be you have to believe that they really know what they're talking about, that their confidence does match their um, opinion and so mm -hmm. which we sometimes call metacognitive accuracy so you have to be have a very good idea of knowing what you know to be a good group member and you probably have to have a good idea that the other about each other member of the group do they know what they know in order that you can um 
properly weight the various people's suggestions. So there's also sort of a form of collective metacognition here. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So I would like to get into the final part of our conversation today, talking about culture specifically. But uh, just before we get into it, uh, I'd like to ask you about uh, teaching, because that's also, I guess, one thing that plays a big role in cultural transmission or the transmission of culture. So how do you approach teaching from the perspective of social psychology? What role does it play exactly? Well, we started talking about uh, learning from others just by mm -hmm. observation. Yep. And we also said that this is something we share with, with all social animals. But we believe that teaching is a real upgrade of this learning from others. And it does seem to be pretty, pretty unique to humans. Um, because other animals, even though they look like they teach their young, they don't, <clears throat> as it were, um, selectively direct. Um, attention to um, to the to the young to actually you know, give them the information. We think they it's all just happening um, because um, you can learn so much by observation. But when you have teaching, you um, need to have mutual adaptation between the learner and the teacher. The teacher needs to have an idea of what the state of the knowledge of skill is of the mm -hmm. pupil. Yes. And they have to sort of arrange themselves in in a in a stepwise fashion so that something new <clears throat> can be acquired that's not too far away from what the the actual level is. So um teaching is very much um a, a a human skill that I think, again, has not been studied enough. I mean, we've studied learning a lot, but we don't really know very much about what makes a really good teacher. We, we have sort of intuitive examples. We can, we can start there, and we would very much like this to see this developed. There's one way of um, um, approaching this experimentally, and this is going very simple and saying, how do we actually uh, process an instruction that we get? Just a simple thing, do uh, press, you know, press the left button. How does this affect our brain in such a way that we can immediately do this? You know, an instruction is an example of teaching. And there are ways of actually studying what goes on in the brain when we try and 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 say, you know, put an instruction from the outside into mm -hmm. your mind and try yeah. and follow it. Which we did mention talking about fear condition. But I, yes, I think particularly we think of human teaching is, a, is an example of joint action. And it's critical that both the teacher and the pupil are mutually aligned, adapting. Aligned it's not just adapted. the teacher saying stuff. Yeah. So uh, I would like to ask you now about cumulative culture. I've already talked about it on the show with several different anthropologists, cultural evolutionists, biologists even. 
And I guess that at this point, at least, it would be safe to say that as far as we know, we are the only animal species that has cumulative culture. There are other species with culture, but not a cumulative yeah. version of it. So as social psychologists, do you think there are specific cognitive processes that would provide the basis to it? Yes, I mean, I think this is where the explicit metacognition comes in. So I don't know whether you've talked to Dan Sperber, but he wrote a book mm -hmm. about culture. And he said that there, there were two processes that were critical. First of all, um, the individual ideas or whatever have to be put into a form that other people can understand so that your cognition actually goes out into the world. And then secondly, it has to come back. So what people say to you has to be turned into something that actually changes the way your brain and mind works. And I think that the explicit metacognition, which we talked about already, has this property. So on the one hand, I can tell people about how I think, you know, my subjective experiences. I can actually tell people about how I think I'm solving this problem, um, what I think are useful ways of thinking about the world. And this goes out into the world, and if it's a good idea and people follow it up, it becomes stronger and stronger, and you get these sort of memes, as they called. And likewise, what people say to me, and we've already discussed a bit, changes my ideas about the world, but also at a lower level changes the way my brain works. And uh, there are very straight things that we don't really notice, that we all perceive the world in a way that is much more similar than we realize. So, for example, someone who's born colorblind is clearly seeing the world in a different way from everybody else. But they frequently don't realize this until they're adults because they can communicate perfectly well. And, never, and the, in fact, the, the way culture works is to smooth out these differences between us. So we all do have a, a, a similar as possible experience of what the world is like. and uh, But of course, but over time, this idea of what the world is like could change. Yeah. And that's and because of these interactions with each other and these discussions. And, and teaching. I think, and teaching, and that's where the accumulation comes in. I mean, I think science is probably the best example of this because science is all about making models of the world, whether it's the physical world or the mental world. And it advances and becomes better and better at predicting things simply by people talking to each other and presenting new models and showing that these are better. Criticizing each, criticizing each other and bringing new perspectives. And... So that's a nice example of cumulative culture. But I mean, there are other ways, like in politics, it's much less clear whether we're advancing or going backwards. Mm. But again, the... Um, Modern, you know, views about how the world works, how we should run the economy. Again, these are results of such discussions. I guess the other thing we should mention, of course, is the the legal system. The legal system is perhaps the most impressive yeah, of result of achievements culture. To to give us norms, to give yeah, us, you yeah. know, actually something that we can. Um, be guided by and that can also be no they will be punished if they've been transgressed 
and that that is 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 really remarkable that that this you know it it it, it still could be improved. We all know that. Um, but at a more simple level, it's. I mean, a lot of it is to do with fairness, and we have intuitive ideas of fairness, and we tell each other what what we think a fair transaction would be. And again, this can develop over time. And certainly, we have to get away from thinking it's fair if I benefit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and so I guess uh, we could say that culture really plays a very important role in human cognition and human societies, right? I mean, for example, Joseph Henrik has an entire book about how basically culture is the secret of our success, as he puts in the title. And we now also have this framework of dual inheritance theory, where it's yeah, not yeah. just about genetic evolution but also cultural evolution and culture can even influence genetic evolution and in yeah. this particular case of cognition culture can also uh, change uh, uh, in certain ways some of our cognitive mechanisms yeah. That's right. right i mean the example of crossing a road is a, is a cultural effect on a very basic motor habit yeah so it's having all it's really operating all the way down Mm -hmm. And so I have one final question then that is sort of a question about uh, one specific application for all of this knowledge. Of course, there would be multiple possible applications of this, but uh, how can we foster cooperation? That's really the big, big question. Um, I'm to one on the one hand, we are really quite amazed how well we can collaborate and cooperate and do amazing things. And on the other hand, we have to see that there is so much conflict and so much uh, misery created by uh, our uh, social nature. Why can't we just, uh, you know, deal with it why can't we once and for all um you know create a really peaceful world a more egalitarian world um i i don't know i don't you know this is obviously something that is is a dream um uh, for us all but we don't know we don't no, i mean know. obviously you might think that what we want is to have one is to have one big in group so that we're all operating in the we mode, we have the same goals, the same models of the world, it makes it easy to communicate. But the, the darks, the, the, what goes wrong here is apparently in the cooperation within in-groups depends on having an out-group. Mm -hmm. If there's no out-group, the cooperation, we start the free yeah, riders the start rates. taking over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very difficult. I mean, the one that, there's a sort of old science fiction idea that if we get invaded by aliens, then we will <laughs> then we will have peace, yeah. <laughs> and we really work together. But we will need that outlook. So there is it, there is an an eternal tension for us, yeah. and it is very difficult to resolve it. Mm -hmm. Also, because I would imagine that completely eliminating and i don't even know how we would do that but completely eliminating differences in terms of 
linguistic diversity, group identity, whatever kind of identity we're talking about, would be uh, would entail some very oppressive mechanisms, I guess, because I mean this sort of diversity that we find across human societies is just something that occurs naturally by people being exposed to different environments, yep. different ecologies, different contexts. So I mean trying to reduce everything to one single, group identity, one language, etc., would be very uh, a very dark approach. Yes, I mean, just saying, diversity is necessary for making good decisions. Uh, right. Right. So let's uh, end on that note then. And the book is again, What Makes Us Social. There it is. And so, it's access. Yes, you can, you can download it. <laughs> yes, as, as I did, by the way, as I did. So <laughs> uh, I'm leaving the link to it uh, in the description box of the interview. And just before we go, apart from the book, would you like to mention any places on the internet where people can find you and your work? Oh, well, we have a, we have a website, yeah. a website, although it's not been updated for yeah, a while, we, we but don't... it has a few interesting blogs and things on it and a bit about our life and oh, then of course, course there's this, this book <laughs> this book which is unfortunately not free but it is in comic strip form so we, we yes and it it does deal um with yeah, many of these with these same questions in fact the two uh kind of uh um twins yes. they they can be, this is the backstory to what you can read very quickly and more easily in this book and, and maybe have more fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so doctors Fritz, thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show. It's been fascinating to talk to you. Well, thank, thank you, you very much. much. We enjoyed talking we were to right. you. We were right to trust you. Yeah. <laughs> Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you liked it, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com and also please consider supporting the show on Patreon or PayPal. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters. Perurgo Larson, Jerry Muller, Ernst, Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf, Alex, Adam Kessel, Matthew Whittingbord, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegar, Ruinacio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Phil Cavana, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andrew, Francis Forti, Agnunes, Fergal Cousin, Hal Herzog, Nun, Machado, Jonathan Labyrinth, John Linares, Tantanti, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, John Weyre, Tom Hamel, Sardis, France, David Sloan, Wilson, Yassila, Desaraújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Puntara, Dana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavlos Tazewski, Nelek Bakka, Madison, Gary G. Alman, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Paul Tolentino, John Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, 
Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litsky, Scott Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Lowacki, George Stephanus, Chris Williamson, Peter Wolosin, David Williams, Diogo Costa, Anton Erickson, Charles de Moray, Alex Shaw, Maury Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Bangalore Atheists, Larry Dilley Jr., Old Erringbun, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Grassi, Zigoren, Jeff McMahon, Jake Zul, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Thomas Dovner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story, Kimberly Johnson, Benjamin Galbert, Jessica Nowicki, Linda Brandon, Nicholas Carlson, Ismael Benzliman, George Coriatis, Valentin Steinman, Per Crowley, Kate Van Goller, Alexander Hubbard, Liam Dunaway, B.R., Masood Ali Mohammadi, Perpendicular, Jonas Hertner, Ursula Goodenough, Gregory Hastings, David Pinsoff, Sean Nelson, Mike Lavigne, and Dios Necht. A special thanks to my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Tom Van Egden, Bernard Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Giancarlo Montenegro, Alni Cortiz and Nick Golden, and to my executive producers, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano, Bogdan Canivets and Rosie. Thank you for all.